Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Great American Senior Show. I'm your gray-haired host, Sam Yates. In a previous episode, we had Fred Schaefer of the Schaefer Group here with us. Fred was talking with us about and giving his expertise on the Champlain Tower collapse. And in the process of that, uh, Fred and I have uh, had conversations about bridges in Florida. Fred, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Sam. It's good to be here. One of the reasons that we have had discussions about bridges in Florida is that you do have some expertise in bridges when it comes to spalling or corrosion of the steel in the bridges. And that's going to lead into a a question I have in a moment. But uh, that, that is an area that you do know about. Yeah, we, we've had the experience over the years. I, I started out my professional life 60 years ago in uh, bridge design. My father was a civil engineer before me, and I started. he passed away when I was 14, and I uh, started working in the office that year. So I've been around engineering all my life. Um, the, uh, the issue, pretty much worldwide, but, you know, especially in Florida, due to the um, humidity and uh, salt air and and other issues like that, is that um, all the reinforcing, which is the steel bars that are placed in a uh, concrete structure, whether it's a building or a bridge or a dam or whatever, these uh, steel bars can, under the wrong circumstances become subject to corrosion and rusting basically and um, as they rust the um, the rust material itself the iron that's being turned into rust is expansive it, it spreads out with a force of 10,000 pounds per square inch and it will fracture the concrete and force it away and that the concrete is what provides the protection for the steel, and now the protection's gone. And you know, it's a, it's not a linear progression. It's you know, uh, it you know exponential. Exponential, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, trying trying to think of an easier word, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah. So it, it it goes fast, and um, so that that is a a big problem here, and and. Uh, the um, engineers and uh, transportation authorities and everybody have been working on various solutions over the years to try to try to deal with it. And I, I pick that example to, to set the stage because in Florida there uh, are lots and lots of bridges. And your expertise has gone, I know, to uh, bridges in other sections of the country where concrete was falling off. In Florida, the little tiny town of Stewart. Florida, uh, a chunk of concrete fell from beneath the bridge, and it was uh, a big red flag. The Coast Guard shut the bridge down. And why the Coast Guard? Because marine traffic was flowing under the bridge. They shut it down, an inspection took place, and the location in Stewart, Florida, called the Roosevelt Bridge, was flagged as having a problem. Uh, ultimately, the Florida Department of Transportation determined that cables that were going through the center portions of the bridge, giving it its uh, support, had deteriorated and actually some of them had snapped. Uh, is that, again, one of those problems that uh, tends to be uh, something that can happen in Florida's bridges? Well, yeah, it can uh, It can happen pretty much anywhere, but like I said, Florida's got some unique problems because of the environment. And um, interestingly enough, I'm originally from Ohio, 
And uh, I did quite a bit of work in Pennsylvania in fairly recent years. And up north, the bridges tend to deteriorate from the top down because mostly de-icing salts. Whereas Florida, they tend to deteriorate from the bottom up because the underside of a bridge is shaded. It's cooler than the outside air. Uh, it doesn't get a lot of circulation. And it tends to grow uh, organics, molds and um, mildews and um, various types of things like that. And those are what contribute to the uh, um, conditions that can cause the steel to deteriorate. And, uh, you know, that they change the uh, alkalinity of the concrete. They uh, allow passage of moisture into the, into the concrete and things like that. So it, it's kind of an, in, it's the same problem only from the, from the other direction. And the, the deterioration here, the Roosevelt Bridge is a, um, what's called a uh, post-tension segmentic, segmental construction technique where it's like a loaf of bread. <laughs> you have a series of slices of bridge and then those are put up into place and then there's a high tensile, series of high tensile steel cables that run between them and then there there's a jack put on each cable and it's pulled up tight and then clamped off and then you put the next piece up and do the same thing. So um, the other illustration I've used over the years, you ever take a stack of books, you know, and you can put your hand on either side of a stack of books standing vertically and you put your hands on your side, push in, and you can pick up the books. You know, and the middle books stay there because of the friction between the the two books. So it's it's a well-established technique. It's been around for well over 20 years, and some major bridges that the um, Sunshine Skyway Bridge is, yes. was, uh, was kind of a, um, a uh, benchmark bridge in this type of design because it, it incorporates several other features that had not been done before, but now are that, you know, now are used quite often like the Charles river bridge in uh, right. Boston. And um, so it's, it's a well-established technique. Well, I want to come back to the, to the Roosevelt bridge because you were here. I, I happened to be uh, in the region when the bridge was being built and uh, to say that it uh, is a bridge without any headaches would uh, would be not exactly telling the truth. When the the bridge was actually constructed, it didn't exactly line up, if I recall. Yeah. Well, these bridges are generally built from both ends toward the middle. And, you know, you tend to think of a bridge to start at one end and get to the other. But in older conventional construction, that's the way it was done. But in this case, they start at both ends. And like I said, you're, you're adding a piece on and attaching it and adding a piece on, attaching it. And when you get to the middle, you slide the last piece in, tie it off, and you're gone. But the problem they had was when they got the two pieces on either side, one was about, uh, as I recall, 18 inches or so yes. higher than the other. Yep, it was an 18-inch factor there, yeah. yes. So now, I mean, that's not, in this case, that's that's actually, you know, that could happen if, if you're not paying attention on any kind of construction. But actually, one of the things that is advantageous for this uh, segmented construction is you can change the pitch of the bridge by adjusting the tension in the steel cables. So they were able to crank the one side down nine inches and the other side up eight, nine inches, and now everything lines up. 
So it provided a, an adjustment factor in there. And I slid the last piece in and tied it off and, and we're gone. But the, the downside, one of the downsides to it is you have a whole lot of seams in the bridge and these all have to be sealed. And, uh, you know, and then the sealing, whatever you method you use to seal it, you know, any bridge, uh, highway bridges that you're, they move when traffic goes over them. Uh, most people don't realize it because you're in your car and you're right. moving. But if you've ever stood still on a interstate highway bridge when cars are going by, you could they bounce it. a lot. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can feel it. And and all that movement, you know, has to be um, absorbed by the structure. And if you, ha- you know, if you have joints, the seams in that, whatever you use method you're using to seal the seams has to be able to accommodate that kind of movement and still maintain its integrity and over time. So I don't know what the per- particular cause was, but my f- my f- initial impression would be that if they were having corrosion in the cables, they were probably getting leaks through the seams. And, and that uh, was indicated in the, uh, the RFP that went out for the next thing I want to talk about. Uh, the RFP said that there was... Uh, uh, examples of corrosion and uh, noted in the RFP uh, that I'll mention uh, that it was not in any one particular area. It was uh, throughout the entire structure. And the RFP was for uh, monitoring, acoustic monitoring of the cables and the bridge structure itself. Uh, obviously, I would think the acoustic monitoring for the cables would be for uh, uh, things that, that make a sound if they're uh, over-tensed, or you certainly wouldn't want to hear that ping, uh, except it would be much louder, indicating that something had gone through with the cable. But is that uh, something that's becoming more common practice to monitor problem bridges with acoustic monitoring? Um, yeah, the acoustic monitoring, I'm not real familiar with, but, you know, I, uh, it, as I re- recollect, it's one of the newer technologies that's being used. Um, in, in the past, they would have, um, stress monitors on there, where they basically cables that are in there and they have a little device on the end of it that's, uh, uh, it's a, what's called a piezometer. And as you change the tension on the cable, it will change an elect a piezometer generates an electric pulse. So by changing the tension on the cable, you change the uh, frequency on the pulse. So you can detect if if something's slipping or moving or you know under the, what the normal traffic loads would be uh, that the the uh, electrical current would follow a pattern. So if you're seeing the same pattern, you know things are behaving normally. If you see an abnormal pattern, now you start looking. And as I understand the acoustic monitoring, it's a more, it's a, it's a similar type of thing, but it's more accurate. And, you know, you tend to think of an acoustic monitoring as something you hear. (laughs) And the frequencies they use are way above what, you know, maybe your dog can hear it (laughs) (laughs) or or the passing bats, right? but, uh, you know, you don't hear it, but it's, it's a matter of sending a uh, a pulse down through the either the concrete or the cables, and if you know, you would be able to pretty accurately determine what that pulse should be, and then uh, once you establish a baseline for the particular structure, okay, here's the type of pulses we should be seeing when everything's normal, 
And then over time, if the pulses change up or down or more or you know higher frequency, lower frequency, that's indication something is going on. Then it's up to the uh, person doing the analysis to de determine, you know, based on their training experience, what what those variations mean. Are they significant or not? And I have placed, just for our audience, uh, I have placed uh, calls into the Florida Department of Transportation to uh, get information on when that initial testing took place after the equipment uh, had been installed, have not had a response back. But what I will do, Fred, is I will uh, request a copy of the test results. And uh, perhaps if you take a look at those, you can share what you see in some of those test results. Right. Um, well, and I can see where, you know, if you were getting corrosion in a cable, that would change its frequency, you know, because of the dampening effect of the, of the rust. I so. want to go way out on a limb and ask a uh, a news guy question. Uh, I think for uh, everyone that listens to this program, they know that uh, I do have a background in the news industry and uh, back at a time when it wasn't fake news. Uh, so I just want to qualify that. Uh, but, you know, my news spider senses sometimes kick in and I ask the crazy question that uh, makes everybody go, hmm, I don't know. But let's take this, the particular bridge, the Roosevelt Bridge in Florida, Stewart, Florida, because there was an 18-inch difference if a portion of that span had to be untensioned, to create a phrase for it, or uh, I'm not sure what the right word would be, or the other section uh, given more tension to make the two match, would that potentially create a stress area in those cables that would be more susceptible to failure? Um, uh, theoretically, yeah, I could see where that could be the case. Um, you know, it, it also can come down to okay, was the area that was the side of the bridge was too low? Was that understressed? Was the side of the bridge was too high, overstressed, or was it C? All of the above. Yeah. You know, I, I, that would take somebody with a lot better credentials than I've got well, to I, determine. I ask that because I plan to ask uh, the Florida Department of Transportation that question. Well, that's a good question. Uh, they have indicated in their request for proposal for the monitoring of the bridge that the failure happened at section, and I just want to I'll, I'll pull one or two numbers. So I would imagine they would be able to go back to the as-builts and say, when we did this structure, we had to make adjustments at section, whatever it might be. And yeah. that would be very interesting to see. They should have all those records. You know, as they build this thing, like I said, they, they would have a record that, you know, section 185, we pulled this many pounds of pressure on, you know, and, and, it, and again, I'm not, uh, well, you know, well versed enough in this type of design to do it, but based on just your basic engineering principles, I would say that if there's 12 cables around the perimeter of this bridge, then there should be. Uh, when we install section 185, here's the the tension on all 12 cables, and it may it may be different. You know, mm -hmm. again, right. as you design these things, you may be pulling different tensions on the top cables than you are on the bottom, but they should have all those records. And then when they went back and retensioned, all that record should be there. So anybody who is competent in the design of this type of structure should be able to go through those records. 
and uh, look at it and then look at what happened and, and make and then you know possibly make an informed decision on that. Well, we certainly are going to raise that question. We'll share the results with you. Good question. Let's, uh, thank you. Uh, Sometimes uh, the old guys still got it. Uh, (laughs) Let's let's take a a leap back to something we started talking about in episode one, and that's the Champlain Tower collapse. For the many others, uh, buildings that are of that age and of that category and perhaps of that condition, would this type, theoretically— this type of monitoring that we may see in a bridge be useful in a condo tower facility, for example? Oh, well, yes, it would be. Um, it's expensive to do. Um, but then, uh, you know, Champlain Towers, uh, at the time they were built, were um, uh, budget conscious, to be kind. Uh, and they were not built as ultimate super luxury condos. You know, the, the size of the units and, and their design. And, you know, your, your luxury is be able to look out and see the ocean. Right. Um, some of the newer buildings that are going up um, have, uh, you know, are much more expensive to build, you know, even allowing for inflation that, but much more expensive to build and could be, um, that kind of monitoring could possibly be factored into it. Now, the other thing too is that you know, even in more recent years, in the last fifteen years or so, uh, the authorities have been much more uh, conscious about the inspections. And you know, you can't get away with stuff like what my brother saw back in the seventies, right? Uh, anymore, uh, and so. That means that the, the newer buildings are much less likely to have this happen, even though the deterioration is still occurring in the newer buildings. The, the chances of having a, a progressive total collapse have been reduced. You know, so you may get a situation where an uh, individual balcony may fail and then hang down or, or sag or something like that, or a, you know, a, section of parking deck may fall in, but, um, you know, to have something cascade the way Champlain Towers did, um, is, is much less likely to happen in the, in the newer buildings. Plus the engineering community in general has become more aware of this kind of a failure. Um, 20, what was that? At least 25 or maybe even yeah, about 20, 25 years ago, there was a, um, building collapse in Cleveland that was very similar to this. Yes, I recall that. Where where a part of the building mm-hmm. pancaked down, but the rest of the building didn't fail. It stayed up. But uh, at that, after that, the engineering community and, and the code authorities and everything started looking at this, and the design uh, procedures started to uh, include factoring in uh, things to prevent a progressive collapse. So when you design a large building like that, you're supposed to design it and then say, okay, what happens if this fails? And and that's the other thing, again, technology, the new computer systems that design these buildings, you can simulate about anything you want. So you can say, okay, what happens if this particular column fails? And the, the computer will then run the analysis, you know, show which decks are going to collapse and what's going on, and then you can 
go back in the design process and stiffen something up to limit the amount of damage that's done by any given failure. So we're the newer buildings are much safer. They're much less likely to have this happen, but there's a whole lot of older buildings that age still out there. Fred, I want to put you on um, notice that if we have another incident, and uh, God hope we do not, uh, but I will call upon you and we'll we'll talk about it and give an honest assessment that uh, sometimes you just don't get from the media. Well, likewise, if something if something crosses my computer screen, you know, from uh, in the engineering newsletters or something like that about about something like this, I'll give you a call and see if you're interested in. Uh, putting it up. You know the answer to that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have to tell you, uh, one of the worst combinations in the world is to put Fred and Sam together because we have been known to sit and talk for days. <laughs> so the fact that uh, you're getting uh, you know, a dose of the, the Fred and Sam show today is uh, a testament to what we are and that uh, we're senior citizens who have patience, but we also know when to quit when we're ahead. Fred, thank you very much for being here. Fred Schaefer, the Schaefer Group. You've already committed to coming back in the future, so I'm going to hold you to that and vice versa. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Again, thanks for being here. We have delved into some topics that uh, you normally might not hear. And, and uh, to be real honest with you, you're not going to hear in the, the regular media because we deal with the topics a little bit differently. We look for uh, truths that we can find. And when we can talk about things that uh, that are not necessarily known, we, we label them with that. And, and that's, uh, I think, uh, giving everybody information to think about, make decisions, and move forward. I'm Sam Yates, your gray-haired host for the Great American Senior Show. And that's the way the program ends. 